Hey gang, I'm back, and this week we're talking about critical legal studies. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about an article by Mark Kelman. And so what is critical legal studies? Well, one way of thinking about it might be like legal realism on steroids, where legal realism took chief aim at formalism. Critical legal studies takes aim in a similar way at the normative side of law and economics. The models that law and economics takes for granted, whether it's the rational actor model, the apparent voluntariness of choice, critical legal studies exposes as questionable and in fact argues that not only is there choice within law, but in fact that law is radically indeterminate that there is always room, and in fact, that law mainly justifies justifies existing power structures. All right, to understand this better, we're going to take a look at two pieces this week. So the first is by Mark Kelman and is a kind of direct response to the Coase theorem, which we talked about in class. And the structure of this piece is, is roughly as follows. In the first part, he talks about the ideological place of the Coase theorem as as, as part of an assault on the wisdom and utility of state intervention. In the second, he raises some, quote-unquote, empirical demonstrations of the theorem's falsity. And we'll see what those are actually interesting and kind of compelling. We'll we'll talk about those in a moment. The third, he gives some explanations of the, quote-unquote, irrational divergence in treatment of what he calls opportunity cost and real cost, or potential income and received income. So he suggests that what may look to economists as though it's irrational may not be so irrational after all. And then finally, he kind of looks at how law shapes tastes by setting baselines and by stigmatizing. All right, so what is this assault on the wisdom and utility of state intervention? What is this assault on the very idea of regulation that Kelman and others identify with at least some elements of the law and economics movement? Well, first is the idea that welfare which is just the maximization of individual utilities, our individual conceptions of the good, that welfare is only maximized by hypothetically free and voluntary transactions, that that's how we get to the best social state. The second is that market failures don't really happen that much, not nearly enough to justify typical state interventions. Another prong of the attack is that state action is generally inept, States do more harm than good. And then last, and this is the one most closely identified with the Coase theorem, is that state action can't actually make a difference. Remember the Coase theorem, at least the, maybe what I call the least interesting part of the Coase theorem, is the one which suggests that it doesn't matter how we allocate an entitlement, the parties will always bargain to get the most efficient result. And we talked about some of the assumptions for that that result, including that there be no or very low transaction costs. Nonetheless, that, that result, that idea, is one of the prongs of the attack here that Kelman identifies, that state action is, as I said before, inept, but also it, it can't actually achieve anything meaningful because parties can always bargain around. Okay, in light of these things, the kind of root position that Kelman identifies with the normative law and economists is that the state can be neutral, The state can just be neutral between private parties by minimally facilitating private transactions and therefore not effectuating what he calls its own substantive vision of mankind. So this is all revealed as ideological, Kelman says, by two challenges of 
Well, I guess you could say critical legal studies, although as we'll see the first, the distributive challenge was originally made by Hale. And this challenge is that any so-called natural state of things, an equilibrium, depends on the setting of entitlements and the content of legal rules concerning transfers. And so any particular distribution of goods is, in fact, a political choice. All right, now we've read Hale, so you remember what that's all about. We choose to entitle one person to keep money in a bank account or to allow a person to acquire goods in this way but not that way. All of our legal rules constitute what it is that we think that we have. The second challenge goes, in a way, even further, suggesting that the way that we set entitlements and the way we construct legal rules actually affects individual tastes. It affects individual preferences. And so to say that voluntary transactions will get to some best state of individual preferences misses the point that those preferences themselves are constituted by those transactions and the rules of those transactions. Okay, so let's look at this last point. Do our tastes kind of exist independent of legal rules? Do our tastes exist independent of what is ours and what is not ours and what we have to do to acquire new things? Kelman's got some really interesting examples that, well, maybe if you think about them, and I'll ask you about these when we meet, might make you question whether you have a stable idea of how much something is worth to you. Now, the theorem assumes, the Coase theorem assumes, that I would trade to obtain a gain just as readily as I'd pay to avoid a loss. Um, or alternatively, I guess using Kelman's language, that I treat opportunity income the same as realized income. So the idea is that I should be willing to pay just as much to acquire a new coffee cup as I would be willing to accept to part with it if, so, if I already had it and someone offered me money for it. You know, that there's one concept of how much that coffee cup is worth to me. And this is what is being challenged here. The Coase theorem relies on that idea. Okay, so here's some casual hypotheticals just to kind of evoke in the reader's own mind maybe some doubts about this. So the, the first example he gives is this example of wine that uh, if, you, if you have a bottle of wine maybe that was given to you or, or maybe that you bought for a cheap price and then you come to find out that it's actually worth $100. And you can make up whatever numbers sound appealing to you. Would you drink it or would you sell it? Now that answer might be different for different people in different situations. It, it surely will be. But can you not like recognize a little bit in yourself the idea that, well, maybe, maybe I would be willing to drink it even if I would never have been willing to pay that much to acquire the wine in the first instance? So I've got the opportunity to sell this bottle of wine for a hundred bucks right now. But, you know, there's no way I'm going to go out and spend a hundred dollars on a new bottle of wine. But I've got it right here. Maybe I'll just drink it. Why not? Right, that, that impulse that we have to, to take advantage of this windfall that we have. Um, is there, that's not rational in the rational actor model sense. But maybe there's something telling about our own psychology if we search it that, that says, yeah, there's, there's something to that. Well, think, too, of this other example he gives. It's a, it's a nice example. It makes me think of my, my childhood. So the example is, uh, you know, it's nice because it's about a color TV and a black and white TV. And the idea is that the black and white TV that I keep, maybe I could sell it for 50 bucks. I could sell it for 50 bucks. But I say, you know what, I can, maybe I could put this in the kitchen or I could, I could put this in another room. It'd be nice to have another TV hanging around. And so I decide to hold on to it. But in the world where I didn't have that, maybe the TV was destroyed or something else, something happened to it. I wouldn't go out and pay $50 to acquire a second cheap TV 
to use in the same way. Have you made decisions like that before? Like, I don't know, maybe with stereo equipment or, or old electronics or uh, you could apply to pretty much anything where there's this thing which you, you could sell it um, for a price that you wouldn't be willing to pay to acquire that thing in the first instance. And yet you hold on to it for some reason. Okay, second kind of evidence he looks at are, are actual surveys where people are asked these, you now they're hypothetical situations, but they, they feel right. And of course, just because they feel right doesn't mean they are. We'll, we'll actually talk about this kind of thing a little bit later in the course. But one survey that he looks at is uh, a, a hypothetical situation where you are exposed to a virus where the probability of actually coming down with the disease is maybe one in a thousand or something like that, maybe even one in 10,000. And the question is, how much would you pay for a vaccine? Now, now you, you probably don't have the disease. The chances are, are very low. You know, again, one in a thousand, make up the numbers. It doesn't matter. How much would you pay? And you write down a number. Okay. And, and then in another situation, we ask you kind of the opposite question. You don't have the disease. You're not exposed to the virus. How much would I have to pay you to walk into a room and be exposed to that virus, <gasps> given that exposure again leads only to a low probability of actually getting the disease, and in fact, the same probability as we used in the first example. Now, if we neglect any wealth effects, the fact that, you know, maybe I don't have a lot of money, and, and Kelman assumes that maybe you could raise the money over long periods. So if, if, if we neglect any wealth effects, how much uh, would you be willing to pay and how much you would be willing to accept? Those should be roughly the same. But in fact, they aren't in these surveys. People give radically different answers. One student said that he or she would pay $200 uh, for the vaccine if he or she had been accidentally exposed and had that small risk. But that same student would demand about $50,000 to walk into a room and willingly be exposed to the same disease with that same risk. Hmm. Now, in both cases, the question is, I guess from a from a rational actor perspective, the same. How much do you value, at what level do you value the elimination of this very small risk? And yet, the situation in which the person is forced to think about that value affects that value, right? If it's a situation in which you are asking them to accept that risk that they don't currently have, they demand a lot more. But if it's a situation in which they have the risk and are having to pay to get rid of it, they pay a lot less. Well, here's another example, which is also kind of vivid. This is the madman's lottery. So imagine this is uh, maybe a little creepy, but imagine that there's a stadium and you know that there are going to be 100,000 people in that stadium and there's a madman in there who will shoot one of them. And the question is, how much would you demand to be paid in order to go into that stadium? Knowing that, again, you're just chances you almost certainly are not going to be shot but one person is one person in that stadium of a hundred thousand will be shot well how much would you demand to be paid on the other hand imagine that you're in the stadium you're already there and you find out that one person in that stadium is going to be shot how much would you pay to get out again here the figures are vastly different even though both measure the same thing or at least from the rational actor model the same thing the value you place on the elimination of that small risk. Okay, Kelman also looks at this natural experiment of the dropping of the reserve clause in, in baseball. And I won't go into that, but I think you get the idea here, right? That people just do not treat, at least in many situations, 
Again, we'll come back to this later in the course, as you'll see. But people do not treat, at least in many situations, received income, the income they actually have, the same as opportunity income, even though the rational actor model and indeed the Coase theorem depends on the idea that they do treat those things the same. So why do we behave this way? Kelman shows us that transaction costs are not enough to explain this. He gives a few possible explanations, and I'm just going to go through these quickly and then leave the rest for our discussion. But first, Kelman observes that it's, it's, there's nothing crazy about not constantly thinking about opportunities for income. In other words, <laughs> you know, m- most of our lives and most of the things that we have, we just don't think about kind of selling those parts of our lives or, those, or our property. And most of the time, we are not in sales mode. Now, economists, as he points out, call this kind of a rational balancing of psychic costs. But Kelman says this is just a tautology. Why do you think he says that? Why is this a tautology? Another point he makes is that people just don't have the same attachments to unexpected income gains as they do to expected income gains. So compare like gambling winnings to like a regular paycheck. He says in Las Vegas, for example, people do treat first day gambling winnings as money that can be freely gambled away during the remainder of a stay. That increment to income affects their view of whether subsequent losses are deemed losses for some psychological base position. Whether they so treat a raise that they learned about while on Las Vegas on the Las Vegas vacation seems very doubtful. Yeah, what, what do you think about that? Does that ring true for you? Another idea here, closing transactions. And this is, this is an interesting one. It's the idea that, that people want to get the value out of the things they have, even if kind of their costs are sunk. Closing off some of what we have and what we do from what he calls kind of the realm of marginal analysis and calculation. This, this may help preserve some imp- what are important to us non-commodified relationships with things. But they might also facilitate control of our future selves by, you know, binding us to the plans of our past selves. And what, what is an example there? He gives the example of pre-purchasing theater tickets. So you bought tickets for, I don't know, the opera or something like that uh, several months ago. And the evening comes around and maybe you'd rather watch TV or do something else and you can sell these tickets, right? And, and in fact, the money you could get for these tickets, at least right now, is worth more to you than going to the opera because you'd rather sit around and watch TV or something. The idea that you don't think of selling them or you don't think of doing something different or maybe you even buy them in a way that prevents you from selling them in the future, Kelman says is rational. It's rational to want to define ourselves through time. It's rational to want to construct our future selves in an image of, well, the kind of person that we want to be. All right, he gets some other examples of, conserv- of like conservatism, that unowned things are, are worth maybe a little bit less than equivalent goods with which we have experience. So, you know, the old TV works and the new one may not, that sort of thing. If we tie all this back to the Coase theorem, the claim here is that if we change the liability rule, if we change the entitlement, you know, do, you, do I have the entitlement to pollute or do you have the entitlement to free air? That changing the definition of what we have kind of reopens all this stuff. It's not clear how we will value things in the world when suddenly we are not entitled to them anymore or how we would value them in a different entitlement state than the one in which we live. And so all of this, this thinking about the madman's lottery and thinking about TVs that we could sell, but don't all of this is meant to expose that our valuations of things depend very much on context, and in particular, the context created by legal rules. But if our values depend on legal rules, 
then how could we ever construct legal rules to maximize value? What do you think about this? Did you find these examples persuasive? Do they make you doubt the Coase theorem in a new way? You know, the standard way is to doubt that there's a world without transaction costs. But I'm wondering if, if this piece made you more skeptical or not. Okay, well, in the next episode, I'll talk about uh, an article which is a little bit more of a manifesto and talks a little bit more about critical legal studies generally. Uh, but until then, take care. Take care.